0: Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content, and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, If you feel as though we have stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics.
1: Hi, I'm Sheila. And I'm Sarah. And welcome to Pushing Pediatrics, an educational podcast for physical therapists created to help those studying for the Pediatric Certified Specialist Exam and anyone else interested in learning more about pediatric physical therapy. Our content today is going to start with limb deficiencies and amputations. Once again, this was the chapter I covered for our study group, and once again, I see my outline was 19 pages long and wordy. My ability to condense and narrow in on information is improving, but just like you, I'm a work in progress. Within this chapter, both congenital limb deficiencies and acquired amputations are discussed.
0: One thing to note with this chapter is that you will need to apply this information in different scenarios, including oncology.
1: Congenital limb deficiencies are described using the International Standards Organization. Deficiencies are described as transverse or longitudinal. With transverse, the limb has developed normally to a particular level, and beyond that level there is nothing. You may have some digital buds though. Amniotic bands are the most common cause of this. You name a transverse deficiency by saying the segment where the limb ends and then describe the level within the segment beyond which no skeletal elements exist. For example, transverse total carpal deficiency or transverse partial carpal deficiency. With longitudinal deficiencies, you will see a reduction or an absence of an element within the long axis of the limb. You may even have normal skeletal elements distal to the affected bones or bones. You name a longitudinal deficiency by describing the bones affected in a proximal to distal manner and stating whether it is totally or partially absent. For example, longitudinal tibial total, tarsus partial, ray one total, Longitudinal deficiencies are more common than transverse deficiencies.
0: Naming the limb deficiencies and understanding the difference was something difficult for me. So I would suggest if it's challenging for you to have this somewhere on your daily study guide for reference.
1: There are actually some good websites that help lay out some pictures of naming the different types of deficiencies. That's where I actually went when I was creating this content for you because I was even a little bit confused. So the book then discusses the embryological development of limbs. It begins by the end of the fourth week of development. The entire process is complex and involves many factors. Causative factors for deficiencies include genetic, vascular, teratogenic, amniotic bands, and for some, it's just unknown. There is a complex lower extremity limb deficiency called proximal femoral focal deficiency, PFFD. With this, there is an absence or hypoplasia of the proximal femur and varying degrees of involvement of the acetabulum, the femoral head, patella, tibia, and fibula. It can be unilateral or bilateral. There are four levels of severity depending on the radiographic findings. And based on those levels, There are different surgical treatment options and prosthetic needs. There's a whole case study on this condition in the Pediatric Case Studies book, and I will cite that book in the episode guide for you.
0: The case studies book was really helpful for this topic.
1: Agreed. Moving on to acquired amputations. These occur most frequently due to trauma or disease. Disease Disease-related amputations are most frequently due to tumors, but can also be from infections or vascular malformations as well. Sarcoma of the bone is the most common tumor related to amputation, and that includes osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma. Osteosarcoma usually peaks around the pubertal growth spurt and occurs most frequently at the metaphyseal portion of the most rapidly growing bones. So those are bones like the distal femur, the proximal tibia, and the proximal humerus. Because these terms come up so often, the metaphysis is the neck portion of a long bone between the epiphysis and the diaphysis, and it contains the growth plate. The medical management of sarcomas is usually a multimodality approach with chemotherapy, surgery, and or radiation. The goals of management are to control the tumor completely, prevent any metastatic disease, and preserve function to the greatest degree.
0: We will talk a little more about this when I go over chapter 16 next.
1: Surgical intervention always has to balance maximizing both function and survival. Amputation historically has been the first choice for bone sarcoma. However, now limb sparing procedures are also an option. Of course, each procedure has advantages and disadvantages that need to be considered. But this is great that there are more options available than there previously were. Limb sparing procedures are the preferred surgical approach for both Ewing's and osteosarcoma. The goal is first to always remove all gross and microscopic tumor and limb sparing cannot be the reason to compromise a total resection of the tumor. Also, in a young child, limb sparing might not be the best if a lot of growth is expected because the child may be left with a severe leg length discrepancy and a non-functional lower extremity obviously lots to consider and probably beyond the scope of this test. There is also a lot to consider when looking at an amputation for a skeletally immature person. First, first, preservation of the physis when possible to ensure continued growth. A fact I didn't know and learned when studying is that in the upper extremity, growth occurs primarily at the shoulder and the wrist, and in the lower extremity, growth occurs around the knee. Second, Amputation through long bones can result in bony overgrowth, which is a painful spike-like growth at the end of the residual limb. This does not bode well for weight-bearing and a prosthesis fit. Sometimes amputations are used to revise congenital limb deficiencies to improve function. This is often used in the proximal femoral focal deficiency condition we previously discussed. Sometimes you may even see an amputation if there's a significant leg length discrepancy. Make sure you review all the different types of amputations discussed in Campbell, such as the syme and the Boyd. In traumatic amputations, the patient may also have to undergo limb lengthening procedures after, especially in something like an above-the-knee amputation where you lose the growth plate at the distal femur. The child's other lower extremity is going to continue to grow, and you may have difficulty accommodating that growth with just the prosthesis alone. Rotation plasty is a fascinating technique, in my opinion. It is also referred to as the Van Ness procedure. It works for some limb deficiencies and is an option for tumors of the proximal tibia or distal femur. The process is excision of the distal femur and the proximal tibia, 180 degree rotation of the residual lower limb, and then reattachment of the lower limb to the remaining femur. Now, the ankle functions as the knee joint, with plantar flexion functioning as the knee extender and dorsiflexion functioning as the knee flexor. Let's talk a little bit about prosthetics. Upper extremity prosthetic systems are either body powered or externally powered. What does this mean? Externally powered prostheses are also commonly referred to as myoelectric prostheses. They are controlled using electric signals that are actually created by the body's own muscles. Specifically, these prosthetics work by using your existing muscles in your residual limb to control the functions of the prosthetic device itself. A body-powered prosthesis relies on a system of cables or harnesses to control the limb. Essentially, you operate and control the prosthetic arm using other parts of your body, such as your shoulders, elbows, or your chest. Body-powered prosthesis are a practical option because they tend to be more affordable than myoelectric options, and they don't rely on an outside power source to operate. There are also combo units of myoelectric and body-powered available. There's a growing number of pediatric lower extremity prosthetics, but it is sure not as wide as the options for adult lower extremities. There are a lot of factors that go into fitting a child that are different from fitting an adult. A child is still growing. They may be facing additional surgical procedures or they may have different deformities associated with congenital deficiencies. The book details the common different types of lower extremity prosthetic devices. Infants and toddlers will need some type of suspension to secure their prostheses and older children will be able to use more of a suction socket. If a child has a rotation plasty, they'll use a specialized prosthesis that incorporates the plantar flexed foot into the socket. Working with amputation and limb deficiencies is definitely a team effort and will obviously include a prosthetist. The goal of therapy is a common theme. Facilitate as normal a sequence of development as possible and prevent or minimize the development of impairments, activity limitations and participation restrictions. Oh, hello ICF model. Main focus areas should be preventing joint contractures, which is gonna matter when it comes to prosthesis fit, minimizing strength imbalances, preventing skin issues, and developing independence with mobility and self-care. With body function and structure, you're gonna look at pain, skin integrity, anthropometric measures, strength and range of motion. Useful activity measures might be something like the six minute walk test or the timed up and down stairs. You might also use something like the Peabody or the Pediatric Balance Scale. Another useful activity measure might be the Functional Mobility Assessment. And for participation measures, you might use something like the PEDS-QL or the PD. Remember to make sure you're using the correct test for the age of your child. This will be something you need to remember as you study outcome measures. You cannot use the Peabody on a 12-year-old. So make sure you know the appropriate outcome measure for the ICF model and also the one that matches their age. Some important treatment techniques at the body structure and function level will be desensitization techniques, massage, and strengthening. At the activity level, you're going to work on developmental activities, transfers, gait, and training with the assistive device for ADLs. At the participation level, you're going to make sure that they're competent using the device for independent ADLs, such as school, sports, or work. The book details therapy interventions at each age range from toddler to adulthood, obviously focusing on a few more specific details. Expert Consult, the online access you get through Campbell 5th edition, also has three case studies for amputation and limb deficiency for you to check out. I feel like the case studies are a great way to help you synthesize the information from each chapter you know the test is going to have case-based questions. So these case studies help you get into that mindset. Use them to test your comprehension of the chapter and make sure you really understand the thought processes laid out by the case examples.
0: We are going to move on to Chapter 16, Pediatric Cancers. There is definitely a bit of overlap with Sheila's material, which is why we grouped these chapters together. This chapter was a little challenging for me to get through just because thinking about childhood cancer is extremely sad to me. Listener discretion is advised. The most common pediatric cancers are leukemia, lymphomas, sarcomas, and central and peripheral nervous system tumors. Leukemia begins in the blood forming cells found in the bone marrow. It can either be acute or chronic. The two most common types of pediatric cancer are acute lymphoblastic leukemia or ALL and acute myeloid leukemia. ALL is most common. If left untreated, death occurs quickly in these patients. Signs and symptoms of leukemia include enlarged lymph nodes, enlarged liver or spleen, fever, easy bleeding or bruising, night sweats and weight loss. Lymphomas are cancers involving blood cells. They are the third most common type of cancer found in children. Signs and symptoms include swelling of lymph nodes, fever, night sweats, persistent fatigue, anorexia, puritus, and unexplained weight loss. Hodgkin's lymphoma and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma are the two major types of lymphoma. Hodgkin's lymphoma is rare, but very treatable with a survival rate of 97% with proper treatment. Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma has a survival rate of 87%. Brain and spinal cord tumors are the second most common pediatric cancer. Symptoms may include headache, vomiting, vision, speech, or hearing changes, worsening balance, unsteady gait, unusual sleepiness, and weakness. The most common categories in children include astrocytoma, medulloblastomas, and epidomas. Embryonal tumors are rapidly growing tumors that arise from embryonic tissues that fail to mature but continue to grow. Three types of tumors that are considered embryonal tumors are neuroblastomas, retinoblastomas, and Wilms tumor or nephroblastoma. Neuroblastomas are neuroendocrine tumors. Retinoblastomas originate in the retina. Wilms tumor or nephroblastoma is the most common form of kidney cancer in children. The book next moves on to bone tumors and soft tissue sarcomas. Sarcomas are solid tumors that arise in connective tissue. Signs and symptoms include intermittent pain that is often worse at night, decreased range of motion or altered gait pattern, and swelling. The most common types of sarcomas in children are osteosarcomas, Ewing sarcoma, and rhabdomyosarcoma. Osteosarcomas are tumors found in bone. They typically affect the distal femur or proximal tibia, with the next most common site being the proximal humerus. Often, the first presenting sign is a pathological fracture. Long-term joint pain that worsens at night tends to be symptomatic. Treatment focuses on surgically removing the tumor. Chemotherapy may be administered before surgery to help reduce the size of the tumor and almost always administered after surgery. Radiation treatment is not typically effective in managing osteosarcoma. Ewing sarcoma is a malignant cancer found in both bone and soft tissue. Pain at the site of the tumor is typically the first symptom. These tumors metastasize in about 25% of cases. Chemotherapy may be administered to reduce the size of the tumor and is almost always administered following surgery. Radiation treatment is not used to manage these tumors. Rhabdomyosarcoma is a soft tissue sarcoma. These tissues tend to occur in the head and neck region and in urinary and reproductive organs. Treatment consists of surgery, chemotherapy, radiation therapy, or some combination of these treatments. Cancers are classified by staging, which helps to determine appropriate treatment options. The therapist should understand the disease severity in order to better anticipate adverse effects of treatment and to help develop treatment plans. The different treatment options include surgery, radiation, chemotherapy, and bone marrow or stem cell transplantation. Surgical removal will occur to remove a solid tumor. PTs need to know where the tumor was located, what tissues were resected, and what tissues were spared. The PT should also be aware if there are any indwelling devices or catheters. Radiation exposes tumors to ionizing radiation in order to eradicate a tumor or decrease tumor size. PTs need to be aware that radiation can cause fibrosis with resulting tissue injury. Therefore, they need to be aware of the radiation area in order to anticipate possible impairments to that area. Chemotherapy will either eradicate a tumor or slow tumor growth. There are a few chemotherapy drugs to be aware of that have adverse side effects. Cisplastin and vincristine are known to cause peripheral neuropathy. Glucocorticoids, such as dexamethasone can cause myopathy and reduce blood flow to bones. Many chemotherapeutic agents also cause cancer-related fatigue.
1: I think it's super important to be aware of increasing induced peripheral neuropathy. It presents with a loss of deep tendon reflexes, motor weakness, usually with decreased dorsiflexion strength and hand grip strength. Loss of ankle dorsiflexion is seen and usually paresthesias in the hands and the feet, and you'll probably also see some gait impairments. Many of these kiddos need night splinting or AFOs to deal with the range of motion loss and the foot drop. Make sure you're familiar with some of the recommendations for chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy. I believe there are some additional recommended readings on this. The case study from expert consult for this chapter is also on vincristine-induced peripheral neuropathy, so it's a great place to work through some of those PT recommendations.
0: Children with leukemia, Hodgkin's lymphoma, and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma may not respond to available chemotherapy and thus become eligible for a stem cell transplant. This is an extensive process that is detailed within Campbell, and we recommend reading through this thoroughly. There are also many outcome measures that are specifically related to cancer that Campbell details. There are some nice charts within the book that are easy to read and understand. Something of note that we referred to frequently during our studying is the recommendations for participation in exercise interventions with below normal blood cell counts and hemoglobin levels. We recommend studying this chart thoroughly as it will assist you in determining when it is appropriate for a child to participate in therapy based on their blood levels. Some charts use different units than others, but Campbell and PCS Advantage both have great charts. During our studying, we used the one in the book. Big things to remember, for white blood cells, if fever is present and they have less than 5000 cells per millimeter cubed, they cannot exercise. Above 5,000 is okay to exercise. For platelets, below 20,000 cells per millimeter cubed cannot exercise. 20,000 to 50,000 can do light aerobic exercise, and above 50,000 can participate in resistance exercise. For hemoglobin, no exercise for less than eight grams per deciliter light aerobic exercise for 8 to 10 grams per deciliter, and resistance exercise when greater than 8 grams per deciliter.
1: Yep, this is a chart you'll have to make and memorize. It was on my master study guide and I was definitely reviewing the numbers frequently. I actually think this is one of the memorization charts I can still pull up in my mental memory.
0: Again, please take a look at the chapter for additional details and other information about PT interventions for specific cancer diagnoses. All right, guys, that was a lot
1: of heavy information. So we're going to leave you with that for now. It was brought to our attention that the Campbell book has some discrepancies in recommendations for Ewing's sarcoma. In one place, we state that radiation is not used, and in another place, we state that it is used. I did some more research, and according to the American Cancer Society, radiation therapy is a treatment option for Ewing sarcoma. So we wanted to put that in there.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to Pushing Pediatrics. You can follow us on Instagram at Pushing Pediatrics. We would love to hear from you. So send us questions, suggestions, things you want to hear more of, and things you'd maybe want to hear less of. We will talk to you guys next week. And remember, you totally got this.